Hi, thanks for joining us again in our study in the Wilderness Wanderings. We are in Numbers chapter 35, and our second to last of the study in the book of Numbers. It's been about a year going through it, and it's been a real joy. Hopefully you've enjoyed it, uh, and it's been a challenge to you as much as it has been for me personally. You know, when we look at the book of Numbers and the preparation to go into the promised land, God and Moses are uh, uniquely preparing these people to enter in. They've hit spiritual issues, they've hit uh, social issues, and and they're going to hit in Numbers 35 a a serious civil issue, one that has theological implications, spiritual implications, practical implications. Bad blood can often divide even the closest of allies. For those of you, those of us, I should say, that love the Marvel comic universe and, and enjoy the Avenger movies, we know that there was even that moment where those who were the closest together, they ended up dividing and having, like, they called it the Civil War, and bad blood broke out even between friends. And that causes people often to pick sides. It causes people to be frustrated. Even in the watching the movies, just the frustration with certain characters, and uh, it, it just caused a lot of ripple effects for those watching those, those movies. Well, Take it out of a, a false, you know, a, a fake fictional uh, comic or movie. Put it into real life. When there's bad blood, when feuds break out, it causes a ripple effect. Even in the church community, whether it's in our uh, public community, wherever it is, those things can, can have long-lasting effects. And God understood that. Moses knew that. And so they're going to address a very specific issue in uh, Numbers chapter 35. We know in our history, we've heard of these great feuds, the Hatfield and the McCoys. But there was one that I was reading about, uh, bad blood feuds. Uh, It was called the Pleasant Valley War. It was out in Arizona. It was uh, between the Tewksbury's and the Grams. And uh, I was like, okay, great. But it was cattle ranchers who were fighting over land. And when I was reading through, it was really interesting because a numbers of you who have been out to Regeneration reservation with us in Arizona, we've actually went through some of the land where this happened. And uh, the Globe area and some of those areas where there were, there were wars over not just the land, but then it turned into a bloodshed. And they, they estimate between 40 and 50 different family members over a 10-year period were, were killed in constant vengeance going back and forth in this endless cycle that, that, didn't, uh, that didn't stop for a number of years. And when we look at those concepts, death, death is sad. Murder, it's heinous. Unfortunately, the emotions that go along with the loss of a loved one can at times really escalate a conflict. And, and God looks and, and understands that in the civil perspective of Israel, going into the promised land, there's going to be some difficulties when death occurs. Not the natural death, but accidental deaths or even intentional deaths. And so you look through and killings sometimes are, that are uh, perceived unjust, somehow they vindicate rioting and looting. We see that in our day. We see that you, we look around and we'll see culturally where an individual will, will die And we think, okay, then it's okay to just take it upon ourselves to go after and to to have that that vengeful justice. Murders of family members at times incite 
different riotings and different revenge shootings and, and retaliation. And God did not want to see that happen. Although it was happening in that culture, God wanted to provide a different perspective on how to deal with some of these, some of these cultural issues that were going to occur in any culture. Because sadly, murder has been around since Cain and Abel, and it will continue in this, in this world. It's, it's just part of life, sadly, is the idea of murder and killing of other individuals. God's aware that the children are going to struggle, that they're going to, as they settle the promised land, they're going to be faced with these civil, civil difficulties, one of them being that idea of killing individuals. And whether it's intentional or unintentional, premeditated or accidental, God is going to look and say, Let's, let me show you, Israel, how to deal with some of this. And it's sadly, as I mentioned, it's been around since Cain and Abel. So let's set the scene for this passage because it's going to help us to understand how did God get here and the transitions that took place. Remember in Numbers chapter 34, God has generously provided more than enough land for Israel to enjoy. The borders are, are expansive, and he's told them, this is how you're going to do it. And God has looked at them, and he's provided them a way to equitably deal the land out. He says that we're going to providentially do it by lots. We're going to proportionately give the larger tribes larger areas and the smaller tribes smaller areas. We're going to have proper leadership that is going to help to, to divvy up the land and make sure that everything is done equitably. But if you look back through the end of chapter 34, when it gives all those names of the different princes or leaders that are going to establish this, what you'll see is that one of the tribes isn't present. It's the tribe of Levi. The Levites are not there. Now, did God forget the Levites? We know that he didn't. We remember back in our study that the Levites were not going to receive a land inheritance. They were going to, God was to be their inheritance, and they were going to be provided for by uh, not only God, but the, the people's tithes. Numbers 18 highlights that. So God's their inheritance. The people's tithes are going to provide it. God is going to provide for his people, but the Levites, truthfully, if they're looking at it like, God, how is this going to work? I mean, are we going to perpetually be just floating around and wandering around? Are we going to have tents that we're just living in? I know, God, that you're going to, you're going to meet our, our sustenance. You're going to give us our needs. But how does this work out, Lord? Are we, are we going to have a home? Are we going to have a house? We don't have land. What are we going to do? So God is going to help answer that question in Numbers chapter 35. He's going to give this Levitical land trust, so to speak. Here's, here's what's going to happen to the tribes of Levi you're going to have cities throughout the land of Israel. He looks and he says, here's what your portions to be. Look in verse uh, 1 and 2. He says, in the plains of Moab, Moses is going to say, command the children of Israel that they give unto the Levites of the inheritance of their possessions cities to dwell in. So God looks and says to the children of Israel, you are out of your inheritance and out of your possession to give to the Levites certain cities, certain places that they can, they can dwell. It'll be a dwelling place. Now, the dwelling place there is not a, a, a land, a piece of land, but it is literally, they're going to have a home, a place to settle in. It's not, the, the land is not theirs. It's almost as if they're renting the land from the, the tribe. They're not paying for it, 
They're just given that to settle, to live there, to, to stay in that, that area. This, these were to come from the possessions of the children of Israel, chapter, verse 2 and verse 8, highlight that. And this was not their own city. The Levites also were not the sole inhabitants. In fact, Leviticus chapter 25 reminds us and tells us that there were going to be others. In fact, Caleb, uh, his, his land pushes up next to one of the Levitical cities, and it's part of the Levitical city. So they weren't the sole, the Levites weren't the sole inhabitants, but it was their city. It was a place where the Levites were going to be able to dwell in. God commanded the people then to give portions of their inheritance to the Levites as pasture land as well. So there was to be a city, and then there was to be land for them to graze the animals. What animals? The animals that were brought to ties, they had to keep the animals that they had themselves were raising. They had to have a place to pasture their animals. So God says in verses four and five, you're going to provide for the Levites a plot of land in order to, to have that. Now, God is going to do that. Why does he do that? He's going to squelch any potential grumbling, complaining about the how much do we need to give these people? Should we keep them poor and only give them a little bit? Should we give them a lot? I want to get, what, is, what does God do? So he, he gives them parameters for which to abide by. Now there's some debate as to how it all works out. Verses four and five are a little confusing when you look at the, the, per, uh, the, the measurements that are given. It says that the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall reach from the wall of the city uh, the suburbs of the city, it says, that's, the, that's the, the land for them, the pasturing, shall reach out a thousand cubits around in verse four. Then in verse five, it talks about on the west side, the, the north side, the south side, shall be 2,000 cubits. So when you start doing the math, you start trying to figure out, okay, if it's a thousand cubits from the wall, and then is it 2,000, 2,000, and the Levites get all the way around the city, how does that measure up? It doesn't, the math doesn't always add up right. Is it, you know, if the city's really big, does that mean they have a little bit of pasture land? Uh, how does it work? Some have argued that you go out a thousand feet or a thousand cubits from one of the edges of the, the wall, and then they're given a 2,000 by 2,000 by 2,000 by 2,000 cubit uh, plot of land to pasture their animals. That seems pretty reasonable. Uh, to, to what is being stated. We're not 100% sure. There's a, there's a lot of trees that have been killed trying to solve that, that issue. We know that, there, we know that there's land that is given to the Levites by God in order for them to be able to pasture the, the, the animals that they have. God commanded that the numbers of cities be proportionate to the size of the tribes. So the bigger tribes were going to provide more cities. The smaller tribes we're going to be uh, to provide smaller cities. The sad thing is we actually find by the time you get to Joshua chapter 20, they didn't do that. Simeon, who's a small tribe, had, had more, more uh, Levitical cities than some of the bigger tribes had, but they were supposed to proportionately divvy up the numbers of cities based on how much land and the size it would be. But we do know that by the time you get to verse 7, there are going to be 48 cities that are going to be provided for the Levites to live in and to be scattered all around Israel. And you can look, and it can be very easy for people to look at this situation and get frustrated. They could imagine, I mean, think about it. You, 
you know, all of a sudden you have the, the Jewish business meeting gathering together and saying, all right, how much land are we going to give them? Where are we going to give it? Let's give them the bad stuff. Let's keep them poor. Let's maybe keep, no, let's make it really big. And you can see the potential going back and forth. And, and looking, and even people looking then and saying, why did they get all the benefits? Why don't they have to have their own land and take care of it? Why do they get our stuff? But there were not just benefits here for the Levites. When God provides this, these cities around Israel for the Levites to live in, this was actually benefiting all of Israel as well. It's not just the Levites who benefit. God is not only concerned with the Levites' care, but also that of the whole people. The tribes was going to be scattered. In fact, this is, this is a fulfillment of uh, Jacob's curse upon Levi uh, in Genesis chapter 49, where he says, because of your attitudes, your actions, your tribe is going to be scattered. You won't have just a plot of land. So interestingly, God uses that moment to fulfill that promise, that statement made by Jacob later on, and now you have the Levites being scattered all over. But the scattering would ensure that there was going to be pastoral care throughout Israel. Could you imagine if you lived in a northern tribe and all of the Levites lived down, way down in the south, day's journey plus away in Jerusalem or in Judah down south? How would you get that, that touch, that tender care, the instruction that you needed, the cleansing that you were going to need when you were unholy or unclean? You needed that. So God ensures that these men are going to be all over Israel for that, that uh, touch, that pastoral care that they were needed. The Levites being scattered throughout the population and the promised land ensured that no part was without. And it also allowed for the tithes and the offerings to be brought to that place. So now you didn't have to bring all of your stuff all the way down. You could bring it to the Levites who were in your area. And then remember in Leviticus or Numbers 18, then the Levites were to take a tenth of the tenth and bring it to the priests when they went to the tabernacle or to the, the temple later on. So it ensures just the, the flowing, the, the outworking of government and the, the civil order that God wanted to have in place for his nation. This enabled that to, to occur. Not only would the Levites provide for the spiritual life of the people, but there would be times that they would have to care for the physical and the civil life of the people as well. And that transitions into the rest of this chapter, that God is looking and telling the Levites, you're going to have to take part in a civil matter, an important civil matter that is going to, to come up. Did you notice verse 6? Verse 6 is really interesting. It says, And among the cities then you shall give un- that you should give to the Levites, there will be six cities for refuge, which you shall appoint for the manslayer, that he may flee thither, and, them, uh, and then you should have another 42 cities. So he's introducing in verse 6 what he's going to talk about in the rest of the chapter. So God says to the Levites, you're going to have 48 cities. Six of those cities are going to be what are called cities of refuge. We have a refuge in our area. It's Middle Creek. It's really interesting. You know, if you've never went down and seen the snow geese in February, March, it's really amazing. You can't. I love hunting, and I love, I love hunting snow geese. It's a lot of fun. But I can't walk into Middle Creek with my shotgun and shoot the snow geese. That's not allowed. 
However, it's really interesting. If you go to Middle Creek and you drive around Middle Creek, just outside of the refuge, right on the borders, you'll see hunters always set up trying to lure in those, in, those snow geese out of the refuge. So there, it's really interesting, though, that we have that safe haven really close by. That's the idea of what God is talking about. There is going to be this safe haven for the manslayer he talks about in the King James. What is that all about? We'll talk about it here in a second. So you have those six cities for refuge or for sanctuary. This is different. Please do not just jump into, we hear nowadays about these ideas of sanctuary cities and we have these sanctuary cities. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's not saying that this is our our cultural sanctuary city. This refuge city is for a specific purpose. And it's for individuals who are living in the civil government and under the law of Israel. Whether it be somebody who is a foreigner or a stranger, as we'll talk about in verse 15 in a moment, those individuals are all still placed under and involved in the Jewish system of government that is there. So what are these cities of refuge? Once again, God is going to provide for his people in a very unique way. Because the laws which God is about to establish they're not the norm in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, when an individual was killed by another individual, then what was going to happen is there was going to be an avenging that needed to take place. So if I killed so-and-so, then so-and-so's brother or uncle or whoever their redeemer was, their avenger, was going to come to kill me. And that my blood was shed would be a, a payment for my taking of so-and-so's life. So there's this, this constant cycle of potential revenge and avenging that would take place. And often this would be done right in the heat of the moment, in the heat of emotions. Nothing was given a moment to settle in. Even if I killed so-and-so accidentally, that individual would be coming after me to spill my blood. Because blood needed to be shed for blood, life for life. So the family would seek vengeance upon the slayer of life. You'll see that term slayer uh, come up in verse 11. It talks about that the slayer may flee thither. So the slayer could run to the city of refuge. Now, this isn't completely unbiblical. And here's, here's what I mean by that. The Bible very clearly teaches us in Genesis chapter 9 that whosoever sheds man blood, man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. We, we are given the, the principal beginnings of, in human government, the idea of capital punishment, that there is a responsibility to uh, enact upon somebody who wrongfully takes the life of a man, he, his blood needs to be shed. Why? Because they're made, it says, in the image of God. And we destroy the image of God when we murder, when we kill those individuals. Exodus chapter 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy chapter 19, all of them highlight that exact same truth that teach that when life is taken, life is to be taken, blood for blood. You can read through those passages. God's word teaches, and we're not going to go into depth here, we don't have the time, but God's word teaches the principles of capital punishment. It even talks about when it's given to, the sword is given to the government in Romans chapter 13, 
that it is there for them to enact. Why? It is to keep the peace. It is to squelch and be a deterrent to men just running wild and going to her baser selves and killing and just randomly killing just because we want that or our hatred or our emotions. It, it puts us in check. God's word establishes, teaches the concept of capital punishment. But let's be honest, there are moments in life when life is taken accidentally, unintentionally. So what is to be done? Well, in the ancient Near East, the family, the avenger of blood, you can see it in verse 19, that's that term, the revenger or the avenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer. And it even talks about in other portions of this text as you go through it, that they will go after the individual who even accidentally kills. That was their, their part. So God is going to look and say, we need to offer a civil solution here and a, God, a God-ordained solution to this situation because God respects life. All life, God respects life. So he provides these cities of refuge. And as these cities of refuge are there, what are they here for? They, are, they were designed for protection. First and foremost, they were, they were designed for protection. It was a refuge, verse 12, to be there that the avenger, that the manslayer die not until he stand before the congregation in judgment. These cities were a refuge, a place, a safe haven that was provided for them because they were in danger of a vendetta, a vengeance against the victims from the victim's family. They knew that. And so what were they to do? They were to flee to that area. This is often called, when you read uh, commentaries or uh, Old Testament literature, it's called lex talionis. Or sometimes you've heard Hammurabi's code, the eye for an eye. That, you know, and, and I, know the, I know the statement, if everybody goes eye for an eye, then everybody's going to be blind. And that's why God breaks in here even and says, hey, let's, let's look at this rationally. Let's look at it from a spiritual perspective and let's, let's think through what is happening. But the societal responsibility in this area at this time during the Old Testament and even in Middle Eastern cultures today, I was reading about a, a story of an individual who, uh, when he was at Harvard just recently, uh, an Israeli student at Harvard, went and was talking to one of, the, uh, one of the other students who was a Muslim woman. And none of her family was around. And when her brothers back in the Middle East found out and heard about this, they found great offense. And they, they found it upsetting. And so when this, this Israeli individual made it back to the M- Middle East, they actually attached him to a car with a chain and drove him up and down the streets until they thought he was dead. And he actually lived through it to tell tell the tale. But then his family started to seek after vengeance against their family. And it causes this cycle of bloodshed and, and disrespect of humanity. And God wants to break in and deal with it. So the, the city of refuge was there to provide a protection uh, for the people. It provided to all who were living under the societal laws of Israel. Remember, that's verse 15. What says, these six cities shall be a refuge both for the children of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them. Remember, we've already talked about those terms earlier, but it's those individuals who have come along. They're not natural born Jews. Their blood is not Jewish, but they're living under Jewish law. They've come into the society and now they're sojourning and living and walking and traveling with them. And they're, they're submitting to the ways 
of God. So they're placing themselves under. This is not them just bringing in immigrants from everywhere and saying, we're just going to let this happen and put them in here. These are individuals, it would be like a green card worker today. If somebody who came in legally with a green card committed a crime, they would fall under the laws of, of America because they're here illegally, legally, and they face those, they face those, uh, those laws. That's what verse 15 is talking about. It's not saying bring everybody into a city of refuge and, and just be okay with that. Um, it's, these cities were not just for protection, but they were also for punishment, which seems a little like oxymoronical, maybe paradoxical. They were to p- protect the manslayer, but they potentially punished the manslayer and definitely punished the murderer. Look at look what the verses say. The slayer was to flee to these cities. Verse 6, uh, it talks about that it's the city of refuge, the slayer. And then uh, that they're to flee, verse 11, they're to flee thither. Verse 15, 26, 32. It all, they all talk about fleeing, going to that place. So if somebody killed an individual, they themselves were then to flee. It was their responsibility. It was, not the, it was not the Avengers' responsibility to find them, hunt them down, and bring them. It was not the other family members or society. It was their responsibility, the one who committed the act. There, it showed that there was an admission of killing the individual. They admitted it. They showed a willingness to submit to God and to the government. By going to this city of refuge, they were admitting that, okay, I have killed an individual, and I am going to submit myself to the rules of God and to the rules of our government as as Jews. And so they would run, they would flee there. When they were there, there was going to be a trial. Verse 12, it highlights that they would stand before the congregation in judgment. It wouldn't be the entire congregation. It would be a representative a group of people usually at the gates of the city where there will be laws and, and verdicts cast. And so we see that. So the judgment is going to be by those people. And there were to be, notice in verse 30, there were to be at least two witnesses in order to convict an individual of murder. So verse 30 says that whosoever kills any person, the murderer shall be put to death. But how? By the mouth of witnesses, plural, but one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. So it goes back to, it's not just a hearsay, he said, she said. There had to be validity and the multitude of witnesses to convict an individual of murder. There was no way also to buy one's ransom or buy oneself out of the way of murder. Verse 31, it says, so you shall... um, If I read verse 31, not 33. 31 says, Moreover, you shall take no satisfaction or payment for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. This stopped anybody who may have been wealthy from just being able to hire a really good lawyer, you know, hire Johnny Cochran, and all you hear is if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. And and now the good lawyer gets me off and I don't don't have to face any, any penalties. No, it's looking and saying that you can't buy yourself out of a murder charge, that we're not going to take payment. They, they couldn't even take payment for the manslaughter charge to be able to escape out of the city of refuge. The, the sentence then would be delivered, verse 24, talks about that there would be, um, that the manslayer and the avenger, the revenger of blood, was going to be under according to these judgments. They were to submit to both parties 
to these judgments. So whatever would happen, that had to be, had to be accepted. Now, how did they know? Was this murder? Was this manslaughter? It was based upon means and motives. In fact, killing can occur accidentally or unintentionally. We see that verse 11, verse 15, it talks about somebody who kills unawares. They didn't know. They didn't realize that they did it. They did not intend to or they did not mean to. But how are these Levitical leaders supposed to discern that? We have a hard enough time with all of our CSI, forensic science, investigative, trying to pin something down on somebody. They looked and God said, here's, here's some pretty clear parameters. Let me help you. The Levites, the good thing was, they were to make sure and ensure that this was a fair and a just trial. They're wholly dedicated to the Lord. So God helps give them clear directives on what to, what to see. So when we talk about murder and manslaughter, Israel is founded on this principle. We know this one. Exodus chapter 20, one of their Ten Commandments. You shall not kill. Now that statement has gotten some bad press in the sense of, well, if we're not to kill, we, we, have, some, we have some questions, some issues. The command is not saying that you can't kill animals. That's not where it goes. The command is not saying you cannot enact capital punishment because God is the one who's established capital punishment. It's not saying you can't kill in warfare. We've already talked about holy warfare and just war uh, a few chapters back. The word that's being used here is the word for murder. You shall not commit murder. It's a willful act in the taking of a life. It is the killing of one on your own initiative and your own authority. Not the government, not God's, but on your own will, your own volition. That's what God is saying, not to take another human life willfully of your own initiative, of your own authority, just because you were angry or because you had a crime of passion or because you hated that individual or whatever the reason. Go through, go through the clue game and what are all the, the reasons for the motives for murder. It's not there. Israel is founded on the principle as well that deliberate sin necessitated that the transgressor be cut off. Exodus 21, again, talks about if this occurs, if you kill a life, then that life must be taken. So Israel and the Levites, they know this. This is foundational to their nation, to their government, to their spiritual well-being. It was the responsibility then of the Levites to determine would the individual who fleed to the city of refuge, were they to be executed or were they to be exiled? Now you look and say, wait, where did exile come in? We'll talk about that in just a moment. So what, is, what about murder? Let's talk murder first because the text does that. Starting in verse 16, going through 21, it's going to highlight if a man smites somebody with an instrument of iron and he dies, he is a murderer. Verse 17, he is a murderer. Verse 18, you'll see again, he is a murderer. It talks about it. Down, uh, you go down a little bit further, verse 21, uh, or uh, verse 22, he is a, 21, yeah, he is a murderer. We see that term come up by God used by him and saying there are clear instances where somebody is a murderer. What are they? When it is intentional, when it is premeditated. God said if it is an intentional killing, if it is a premeditated killing, they are a murderer. If they used a weapon to harm them, 
than their murderer. The iron weapon, the stone weapon, the wood weapon. If it's a club, if it's a, if it's a farm instrument, if it's a knife, it, if it's a sword, something made with hands, used and then fashioned in order to do harm. He says, if you kill somebody with one of those weapons, with one of those instruments, you're a murderer. The result then is that the avenger, verse number 19, the avenger, the revenger of blood himself shall slay the murderer, life for life, blood for blood. It's not just a personal vendetta by the individual. It is under that civil authority that they look and they say, yes, this was murder. It needs to be enacted. And they allow the individual to enact that, the the kinsman, the redeemer of the family. What's really interesting is this term for avenger that is used here in this passage is goel. It is the term that is used throughout the, New, the Old Testament to talk about the kinsman redeemer is the goel, the one who buys back land that has been lost in the family, the one who buys back or takes an individual. Boaz was Ruth's goel, the redeemer who brings, brings her back and provides for her. This is the same. They have the family's best interest at heart. They are redeeming what has been lost to the family there to redeem it, to bring it back. And in the case of blood for blood, they have the responsibility then of executing the individual. That is the way God has established it within the civil government of Israel. It was not just a whim and a wish by the individual to go out. He also says, not only if you use a weapon, but if you premeditatively assault an individual to kill them, you're a murderer. Look in verse 20, 21. It talks about, but if he's thrust him, uh, thrust him of hatred or hurl at him while he's lying behind a wall, he's waiting because he knows that he's thinking about, I know where they're going to go. I'm going to wait and then I'm going to strike at them. Or the enmity smite him with his hand. There's an anger, there's a bitterness, there's a rage. Then he, and then he puts him to death. He says, that individual is a murderer. You push him, you shove him, you start brawling, you hit him with a fist. All of those are talked about in those two verses, and it's done with that animosity, that hatred, that bitterness. That person, if you kill that individual, you are considered a murderer, and you are to be executed. And so God lays it out very clearly. The crimes of murder here are laid out, and the crimes of murder cannot be paid for except with the life of the murderer, blood for blood. It is, a, it is an Old Testament principle for the Jews to live by that they were, they were functioning under. What about manslaughter? A, a little different term. Now, not, not necessarily all in the legal sense we have today, but thinking Old Testament. There was the, the premeditated, vindictive, angry murder, killing somebody out of bitterness, rage, hatred. But then there was the unintentional, the accidental, the manslaughter. And God talks about that in verses 22 through 25, where he says, and he goes actually in the reverse order of what he just sort of talked about. But if he thrusts him or pushes him suddenly without enmity or cast upon him having anything without laying in wait, he doesn't hide behind the wall. He, he looks and he, he throws, a stone happens and he doesn't see the individual. You know, you're walking around, you're goofing around, you throw a stone and you don't realize it, but it strikes a guy in the head. And that person dies. You didn't mean to do it. It was an accidental death. If you kill an individual without hostility, without lying in wait, without seeing him, 
you are not an enemy to that individual. You are not seeking to do them harm. All those things laid out in these verses here, 22 to 25, God says there are accidental killings that take place. And so when that happens, what do we do to this individual? If you've killed an individual accidentally, then the outcome here is different because the attitude or the intention of the killer is different. So there then, what, it, what happens? God lays it out. He says the individual is then going to be sentenced to exile, not out of the community, but they're going to be sentenced to exile within the community in the city of refuge. They're going to have to stay there. The individual is still, because they're still guilty of depriving the nation of a life. They've still taken the life. And so God says their punishment isn't severe, as severe, but you are going to have to have some of this communicated, this sense communicated. Could you imagine this? Imagine your teen is driving and they decide to text or maybe one of us do the same. And we accidentally hit somebody on a bike. We kill them. We're going to feel horrible. Well, in this case here, your teen then must go live in that city of refuge. They're no longer at home. There's some, there's some weight that God is lending to the importance and the respect of life, even in accidental killings, unintentional killings. He still looks and says, life is important to me. The judgment, again, to be accepted by both sides, that's going to be hard because the avenger is going to want to spill the blood so that the blood is paid for blood. Life for life. The Levites were to do what? Look what it says, uh, verse 20, 24, 25. The congregation shall deliver the slayer out of the hand of the revenger of blood, and the congregation, the people, are to restore him to the city of refuge where he had fled, and he shall abide in it until the death of the high priest. So there's, they're to re- rescue them, they're to return them, and then the slayer, the one who committed the act, is to remain in the city of refuge. For how long? Until the death of the high priest. Verse 25 and 28 both talk about that you are to remain in exile until the high priest dies. Why until the high priest dies? What does that have to do with anything? Only the life of another person can suffice for the loss of life. And that has been been laid out. And only the priest has been authorized, Numbers 15, uh, verse 25, yeah, verse 20, Numbers 15, 25. Only the priest is authorized to bear the culpability of the sins of ignorance, the, the unintentional sins. We've talked about that already. So the priest is allowed to do that. So when the high priest would die, then the slayer was free. His, his uh, sin guilt was paid for. His unintentional sin was covered. It was, it was erased by the, the death of the high priest, and his crimes are now paid for. And the avenger had to accept that. The avenger was not able to then, when the high priest died and the slayer leaves the city, the avenger was not able to go out and exact the punishment. There's a really beautiful picture, I believe, here of our relationship with God and with Christ. It is my sin that caused the death of God's son. It is my sin that placed Christ upon the cross. His love for me allowed him to hang there. God has every right 
to exact his vengeance upon my sin. I have every, I should be under every wrath of God. And yet it's because of the death of the great high priest, Jesus Christ, that my sin is paid for. That my sin is covered. And that God does not exact his wrath upon me. Why? Because the high priest, the great high priest, paid for my sin. Now, what, what continues? If the manslayer chooses not to remain, interesting caveat, look at verse 26, 27. But if the slayer shall at any time come without the border of that city of his refuge, whither he had fled, and the revenger of the blood find him without the borders of the city of refuge, and the revenger of the blood kill the slayer, he shall not be guilty of the blood. So the slayer has a responsibility to submit to the government authorities, to his punishment that has been given. The avenger is not going to be then held guilty of killing that, the slayer of the, the, human, the, the human, the other human. So the slayer has to submit. A beautiful picture of law and order that when it, and a, a judgment is handed down to submit and you do the crime, you do the time. And they accept, they have to accept that. That's all involved in the city of refuge. It's not just a place to run and chill and hang. There is a, there is a perspective of payment of dues, payment of the crime that has been committed. Now, God wraps it up and he gives the theological premises for why he does this, why he's so firm on this idea of murder and manslaughter and blood for blood and dealing with all of this. Why take the time to lay out these laws? Verse 33, 34, and notice verse 29 says, this shall be a statute. This is a law that you are to hold to. So verse 33, so you shall not pollute the land wherein you are. For blood, it defiles the land. The blood is talking about the spilling of of innocent blood, the killing, the murder. Keep it in context, the murder, the, the manslaughter. It defiles the land, and the land cannot be cleansed of the blood that is shed therein, but by the blood of him that shed it. You cannot get away from the fact that God says blood for blood, life for life. You can't look and say, well, that's, he says it right there. That's what he's talking about. He says, defile not therefore the land which you shall inhabit, wherein I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. Blood defiled the land. Even back to Genesis chapter 10. Remember when Cain kills Abel in that first murder. What does it say? The blood is crying out from the ground. It's been defiled. God holds the blood so precious, the life of an individual so precious. The only way to cleanse that blood is for blood to be shed. So you look and say, God has led them, tells them to take care not to defile this land. Don't go into the land and just get angry with your brothers and kill them. Be cautious that you're not flippant with how you live and accidentally kill somebody. Be wise. There's lots of practical implications for us. And even, I mentioned it already, the texting and the driving or the, the, the drunkenness and driving or the, the, the ways that we push and get angry with people, the, the, the senseless fighting. We have to be really wise and careful because God holds life precious. Because he says, I want you to do this. Why? Because he says, I dwell in this land. I am your holy God among these children among you, my people. 
And if you defile the land, you're defiling the entire realm. You're making it unclean. I want to be here. I want to have holy fellowship with you. I want to remain. It makes sense to me why David says in Psalm 51, he sinned against Uriah. He killed Uriah. And what does, God, what does David say? Against you, God, and you only have I sinned. He understood that his sin was a defiance against God. The manslaughter, the killing, the murdering of, of individuals, of innocence, God sees that as a, an affront to him. It is sin against our holy and righteous God. When we look at this passage, what do we take? We don't have cities. Well, we have sanctuary cities. We don't have cities of refuge like this is talking about. We don't live under the, the Israel civil government of the Old Testament. What are the takeaways? What do we pull away? What are principles that we can look at this passage and say, here's what I need to be aware of? I think, first of all, God desires the vicious cycle of bitterness and hatred to be broken. He wants us, the whole world, I mean, when you think about it, it seems to run on vengeance. There seems to be this constant cycle of paying back, of getting my just dues, of you did this to us back then, so now we're going to do this to you now. That's that is a lot of the mob rule that's going on in our society right now. It's because of the way that we were treated or the way that certain people were treated generations ago. Now it's time for us to get ours. And if we don't get ours, then we're going to hurt you. And then what's going to happen is later on, the people who get hurt are going to come back and say, well, you did this to us, so we're going to do this to you. God does not want to see this vicious cycle of bitterness and hatred to continue on. In fact, we're to be like God, to be like Christ, to submit to his word. Can we forgive even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you? Are you in a cycle of bitterness, of vengeance against somebody close? And you need to let go of that hatred. You need to forgive that individual just like Christ forgave you. Another principle I think we see here is that God desires people to be individuals of law and order and not mob rule. He says, yes, there will be the blood-for-blood blood execution of a murderer, but you need to do it within the parameters of the civil government that I have established. It's not just to be a, the bigger crowd or the larger people or the people with the most guns wins. God says there is to be law and order. Why does he take so many pages of scripture to establish law and order and spiritual law and spiritual order? Because God is a God of order, not chaos. God is not talking and promoting a mob rule here in a vengeance-filled society saying, here's, here's some law. Here's some civil government law and order that you are to follow through. We should protect as well individuals who are being run through by the mob. If there are, now we don't have the mob like, you know, the Chicago mob, like we used to, you know, we talked about. But if we start to see individuals being, being ramrodded by culture and by the cultural mob that is really, we need to stand up for people. Stand up for those who are, who are righteously defending the faith but are being, you know, cast aside and castigated and hurt. We should be standing up for those. God reminds us as well that his people that sin Sin is always and ultimately against God. The murder, yes, it, they murdered so-and-so, but God says that murder is against me. 
David recognized that God said it. Our sins, maybe it's not murder, but isn't it interesting that Jesus equates our hatred of an individual to murder? I'm pretty, pretty confident that many of us have had those strong emotions toward individuals, maybe toward some in the mob rule, maybe some who are out there right now very much against where we stand and we, we want to say, I hate them. God says, hey, whoa, back up. I have to look and say my sin is always and ultimately against God. God reminds his people of his grace. This one, I haven't, I haven't even fleshed it out, and I'm not going to take a lot of time to flesh it out. But the Levites are a beautiful picture of grace, and especially for them to be in this unique perspective of discerning between murder and manslaughter. That's what I mean. The, the tribe of Levi, it started out, Levi himself was a murderer. He, he committed premeditated murder against the city of Shechem with his brother Simeon. You can go back into Genesis 34 and you can follow. And what happens because of that is his father Jacob pronounces a curse upon him. And that you're going to be scattered and there's not going to be this, this greatness among you. But Levi, the tribe of Levi, after the exodus, they stand with Moses for righteousness. Who is on the Lord's side? Who is the ones who stood up for righteousness against the golden calf worshipers? It was Levi. They took up their swords. And God honored them and rewarded them because they stood for righteousness. Their past history was that of being a murderer. Now they've stood for righteousness. And God accepts them. He adopts them as his own into his special service. And his grace is lavishly poured out upon them. And they receive all these benefits. Now the ones who their ancestry is that of being murderers, now they are standing here in judgment to discern between individuals. And every time they have to see an execution take place, or every time they see an individual running because somebody had killed or they had killed an individual, maybe accidentally, they are reminded of their history and yet reminded of God's great grace in their life. The yes, that is my past, but that is not my present. And it is definitely not my future. God's grace is sufficient even when our history, our family backstory, our heritage may not be beautiful. God's grace is sufficient for any. And I believe the last thing that, that is just permeating this passage is that God desires his people to have a great respect for the sanctity of life. God respects life. He is unapologetically pro-life. He is for people living. He does not want to see them murder. He does not want to see them manslaughter. He does not want to see the death. He's all about life. He sends his son to provide eternal life. Death is a result of sin. Death is a result of the curse. And God is unapologetically pro-life. He recognizes the supreme value of all life in this. Even the manslaughterer, the slayer. He says, whoa, 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 before this person's going to be avenged, we're going to hear him out. Because it could have been an accidental thing. 
Every human being is made in the image of God. God lays that out, Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 2, 3. We're, we're made in God's image. He is saying that you do not have the right, the right to wipe out anybody else's DNA. I love this statement. I heard it just this week. When I was studying and reading, I do not, when I, when I murder somebody, I don't have the right to wipe out their DNA. That's not my responsibility. And that goes as well for the individual. This includes the DNA, the unique DNA in a mother's womb. I thought it was a brilliant argument for pro-life. I don't have the right to wipe out any DNA. Not even is the life viable or not. No, the DNA is unique to that individual, to the baby that is in the womb. And I don't have the right, and no mother has the right to wipe out the DNA of another individual because that life is precious to God. And that because that life is precious to God, that life is to be precious to us. You've got to imagine, if the land cries out because of the blood that has been spilled, the land of our nation has to be screaming. What do we do? We need to be praying. We need to be talking to individuals who are going through battles. Maybe it is. We don't always do that, but maybe it's helping in some of these areas where if you can help with the crisis pregnancy center or go and give some time at places where you're able to or you know somebody who's considering an abortion. Talk with them. Be praying, helping in those areas because God is saddened not only by that senseless violence, but honestly, the senseless violence that occurs in our streets, in our cities, in the back alleys. We need to be praying for our nation. We are in a nation of violence where death is not even real. I mean, yeah, we talk about it, but the reason it gets talked about is for a political agenda. We ought to be more than a political agenda. We ought to be really concerned about the fact that lives are dying. And God considers life precious. How do we make a difference? To make a difference in a land filled with violence and death, we have to be like these cities of refuge. We have to be a place of hope. That there is hope in Christ for the mother who doesn't know how I'm going to do this, so maybe I'll abort my baby. No, there is hope in Christ. For the person who has been beaten up and has been hurt, no, there is hope in Christ. There is life in this, this, this senseless violence and death all around us. There is life through Christ. He is our hope. He is our life. And we need to be the light and the shining beacon in this, this land that is filled with death and chaos to highlight the hope and the eternal life that we have because of Jesus Christ. Let's this week be hope and life for people. Show them the life and the hope of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would help us to be hope and life for others. I know that we're not the ultimate hope. You are But Lord, help us to reflect your goodness. Help us to reflect your grace, your life, your love. Lord, I pray for our nation 
There are so many areas. There are, there's different bills coming up and, and different arguments that are being made, Lord. I pray that you would help our nation to turn away from the senseless murder, the, the, the heinous murder of all these children. Forgive us. And yet, Lord, I pray that you would do something amazing to, to help stop some of that. And Lord, I pray that you would work in a way to help us to be able to be light to these, the, the, these individuals who are just senselessly enacting violence all around us, Lord, it's easy to hate them. It's really hard to love them. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to show the love that you have for us, for it's in your blessed, your wonderful, your hopeful name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great day.